Good morning and welcome to our worship service. We're very grateful for your presence. We're always thankful to have visitors with us. We want to encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're always glad to have visitors with us. We have a number that come our way each week and we appreciate you honoring us with your presence. We have had a number of people that have placed membership with us recently. We've had some that have been baptized into Christ. It might be the case that you are here today and you're looking for a church home. I would encourage you to consider the work here. I know that our elders would be more than happy to answer any questions that you might have about the work and they would love to have you come and join hands with us as we work in this community. We're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 2, the passage that Isaiah read a moment ago. In verses 5 through 11, and we want to talk about the theme, the panoramic profile of Jesus. When you look at the scriptures, one of the things that ought to impress you, ought to really impress all of us, is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, tasted of death for every man. And the redemptive story, the fact that Christ came to this earth, lived among men, and died for our sins is seen in both the Old and New Testaments. And so literally, the redemptive story is revealed bit by bit and piece by piece. And so in verses 5 through 11, we have the gospel and the work of Christ in capsule form. And so I want us to look at verses 5 through 11. The first thing that I want to call your attention to is the visitation of Jesus. When we talk about the visitation of Jesus, I want to accentuate the fact that Paul said he came in the likeness of men. Now there are two things that we need to understand in relationship to this point. First of all, there is what is called the pre-incarnate Christ, and then the incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ is a reference to the deity of Christ and to the fact that he is pre-existent. And really, when we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, that's what we're talking about, his pre-existent state. And the idea is that Jesus has always existed. There has never been a time when Jesus, the Son of God, did not exist. For example, back in Genesis chapter 1 at verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That, of course, is a reference to the Godhead. There are three distinct members of the Godhead, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, with regard to Jesus as the second member of the Godhead, John said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That is a reference to Jesus and his pre-existent state. Now, if you go back and look, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9 at verse 6, Jesus is identified as wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And all of those terms that are used describe the one that we call deity, that is, the preexistent Christ. In Micah chapter 5 at verse 3, 
Micah foretells of the birthplace of Jesus. And he pinpoints the location of the birth of the Son of God. We know it as Bethlehem. But he said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting, or quite literally, from the days of eternity. That is a reference to the preexistence of Christ. Jesus has always existed. There will never be a time when he does not exist. But then in the second place, as we think about his preexistent state, and Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 at verse 5, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, or existing in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. So the pre-existent Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, and then the incarnate Christ, and the idea here is that Jesus came in the likeness of men. Paul said in verse eight, he was found in fashion or found in appearance as a man. Now John said concerning the word in John chapter one, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All John is saying is that Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, tabernacled in human flesh. In other words, he came and dwelt in human flesh. Now, along those lines, Paul would say in Colossians 2, at verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus came in bodily form. And so again, we talk about the pre-existent Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the incarnate Christ. Now, there are three things that we need to, we need to see in relationship to the incarnate Christ. First of all, there had to be a body. A body was prepared for Jesus to tabernacle in. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse five, the Hebrew writer says, speaking of Christ, a body you have made for me. Now, where was that body made? Well, it was made in the womb of Mary. And now we talk about the birth of Christ and we're really talking about the virgin birth. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 talks about the fact that the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child and conceive and bring forth a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Well, Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 gives us the lineage of Christ. That is, he traces the seed line. And then he points out that that which had been conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. This is not a normal birth but rather she would bring forth a child. And she did bring forth a child. The angel of God said, she shall bring forth a son, you will call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. So we think about his body, his birth, and then his business. Why did Jesus come to earth? You remember in Luke chapter two when Jesus was just a boy? He told his mother on one occasion when he had been left behind in Jerusalem after they came back and found him, he said, I must be about my father's business. Here is Jesus, just, just a boy. And yet he understood he had heavenly, he had what we would call heavenly business. Jesus came to give himself for the sins of the human family. Now, 
as his ministry begins at the age of 30, and Jesus ministered on earth for about, 30, for about three years, three plus years, he talked in detail about his work, about his mission. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 38, he said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus had heavenly business, and he came to accomplish the will of Almighty God. So we think about the visitation of Jesus, and then secondly, the humiliation of Jesus. Now, in verse, in verse 8, the Bible says that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Two things here. First of all, Jesus came to be a servant, didn't he? As a matter of fact, Peter in Acts chapter 3 at verse 13 identifies Jesus as a servant. Jesus came to serve the human family. When, when you go back and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, isn't it interesting that Jesus was not born in the palace of a king? He wasn't waited upon by, by servants, but rather Jesus came with the purpose of serving the human family. For example, in his earthly ministry, the Lord said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Now listen to what Paul said. Paul said in verse seven that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. A lot of people, they want to be served. A lot of people, it's all about them. It's about other people waiting on them. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at his ministry, what, what stands out to you? Let me tell you what stands out to me. That Jesus was constantly ministering to the lives of people. He was all about trying to help people. Jesus helped people physically. He helped people spiritually. He helped them in whatever capacity, whatever lot they found themselves in life. Why? Because he cared about them. Jesus genuinely cared about those of us, or rather he cared about those who were in the human family in the first century. He cares about us today. And we ought to be impressed with that fact. So, we talk about the fact that Jesus is a servant. But then there is a second thing. Not only did Jesus come as a servant, but he came to offer sacrifice. In other words, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for the human family. Now, Paul said he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's a very sobering statement. When you begin to reflect upon the fact we're not talking about just a mere mortal man, but rather we are, we are emphasizing here the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, came and gave himself in our stead. Now, along the lines of his service and his sacrifice, did you know that Jesus literally, quite literally, gave himself as an offering to God? But not only did he give himself as an offering to God, he was obedient to God. Look again at what Paul said. He became obedient to the point of death. Jesus was obedient to the Father. Well, what did God, 
What did God require of Jesus? What was it he wanted Jesus to do? In Revelation chapter 13, 8, John spoke of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God the Father ever created the world through the agency of Jesus, he decreed that the human family would be saved through his son. He envisioned Jesus coming to earth and giving himself for the sins of the human family. Now that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So when Jesus came to earth, what was he doing? He was coming to fulfill the will of his father. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my work is to do the will of him who sent me. Again, John 6, 38, I came down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of the father who sent me. Jesus came to comply with the will of Almighty God. In Hebrews chapter five, verse eight, the Bible says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So Jesus was obedient to the will of God the Father. But then what about this offering? Did Jesus not give himself as an offering for sin? The Bible says he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. A moment ago, we partook of the Lord's Supper. In partaking of the Lord's Supper, we reminded ourselves of the body given in our stead. Jesus gave himself for my sins. We have the sacrifice of his body and the sacrifice of his blood. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 at verse 14 that he without spot, gave himself to God. Now, along the lines of this great offering, Paul in Ephesians chapter five at verse two said, walk in love even as Christ also loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Imagine if you can, here is Jesus He's on planet earth. He understands that before him looms the cross. He goes to the cross. He suffers the ridicule, the inhumane treatment of the cross. All for whom? For those of us in the human family. When Jesus died on Calvary, he had you in mind. When he died on Calvary, he had me in mind. That's why Jesus could say in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To know that God the Father loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And then here is Jesus taking upon himself the role of a servant to make sacrifice for us so that we might enjoy a relationship with God the Father. But then there is a third thing that is borne out in chapter two, we talk about the visitation of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, but then thirdly, the exaltation of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in verse nine. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
When you look at Jesus by way of, of his position, the Bible says that God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places in Ephesians 1 verse 20. He said, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. So here is Jesus. He is in this exalted position. He is described in the New Testament as Lord. Jesus wants to be the Lord of your life. You remember on Pentecost Day when Peter talked about the suffering, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus? And he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. What does it mean to be the Lord of our life? It means that he is the one who reigns or rules in, in, in life. Jesus is identified in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of all lords. He is the King of all kings. Now, if you're a king, you have a kingdom, don't you? That means those who are in the kingdom, those who are in the church, we have a king. We talk about King Jesus. Well, he is a king. He is prophet, priest, and king, according to the scriptures. But here is Jesus. He has what we would call universal dominion. He is over everything. As a matter of fact, that's, that's how the Bible portrays Jesus, as being ruler over everything. Jesus would say in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The Bible says in Matthew 17, verse 5, that we are to hear Christ. Why? Because he has all authority. Because what he says, what he legislates as king, as Lord, that's what goes. So, what then is the response of creation? Two responses here. Number one, we see the submission of creation. Listen again to what Paul said, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. You and I, we are members of the human family. And we have the opportunity to bow in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We have to understand that Jesus enjoys an exalted position. That Jesus is at the Father's right hand. And that he, well, really in that exalted position, there, that is a designation of his power. He has all of this authority. And what is it he wants from us? He wants us to bow in submission to him, to follow his will, to do what he says. But then not only do you have the submission of creation, but there is the confession of creation. Now, what is it the Lord would have me to do? Well, he would have me to bow in submission to his will, to confess him as Lord of my life. You remember in Acts chapter 8 when the eunuch came to understand that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 of Isaiah 53, that he had literally come to earth and died for the sins of humanity? Do you remember his response on learning about the servant Jesus? He said, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He literally made the good confession. We have that same opportunity. But listen, 
Not only will we confess him here on earth, and not everyone will, we have that privilege, that opportunity, but we will one day confess him to the glory of God at the judgment. Jesus said that the Father has committed into his hands the authority to execute judgment in John chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus will one day be our judge. The standard by which we're going to be judged is his word, John 12, verse 48. Jesus said, he that rejects me, receives not my word, has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So when we stand before Almighty God, what is it that's going to be required of us? Well, we're going to give an account of the deeds done in the body according to 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 10. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 14, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So here, here you and I are pictured. And we're standing before the throne of God. We're going to bow in submission to him. And we're going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of Almighty God. Now when you look at the life of Jesus, you look at him in his pre-existent state. The fact that Jesus loved us enough to tabernacle among men, to come in human flesh, to live, to die, and to rise again. Why? Because of us. He's now exalted to the right hand of Almighty God. And here's what he desires of you and me. He desires that I bow in humble submission to his will, that I make him the Lord of my life, and that I strive to the best of my ability to walk in accordance with his will every day. Now, am I perfect? Absolutely not. But I understand that as long as I'm walking in the light, as he is in the light, I have fellowship one with another, and as John said, the blood of Christ constantly is cleansing me from all sin. In 1 John 1, verse 7, Jesus wants to be the Lord of your life. And so what you have to do, you have to look at, at the picture that is painted in Scripture. That picture is, is really painted piece by piece. And as you begin to, to, to look at this portrait of Christ, you see that God the Father had you in mind when he sent his son to die for your sins. This plan was conceived of before, before the world ever began. And so the great privilege that you have and that I have is that I, I can decide, you can decide to become a child of God. What would it take for you to become a child of God? Well, the Bible says that you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, you've got to look at this profile in Scripture. And you've got to come to, you've got to, come to, to understand that Jesus truly exists. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I am the divine Son of God, you will die in your sins. And if you die in sin, Jesus said, where I am, there you cannot come. Then you've got to be willing to repent, to give up sin. You've got to understand that there's a better way of life. That better way of life is in Christ Jesus. You've got to give up a life of sin, unrighteousness, the world, etc. And then to confess the name of Christ before others. The Bible then says you're to be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away. Acts 2 verse 38. 
Now listen, when you do that, you become a child of God. The Lord then adds you to his church, to his body, Acts 2, verse 47. And the reason you need to be in the church, the reason you need to be in Christ is because that's where the saved reside. Ephesians 5, verse 23. If you're here today, maybe you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, we want to plead with you to come home. Maybe at one time you, maybe at one time in your life you made the decision to become a Christian. You said Jesus was going to be the Lord of your life. But you, like the prodigal, have gone back into the world. You're not living as you should. You know that your life is not what it ought to be, that if you died today, you wouldn't go to heaven. Well, there's hope for you. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come as we stand and sing?